Hey everybody, this is Becky Buller and you're listening to Acoustic Music Talk with Brad Apple. Welcome to Acoustic Music Talk, where we explore the art of acoustic music and musicians with your host, Brad Apple. Hello, folks, and welcome to Acoustic Music Talk. I'm your host, Brad Apple, and I would like to welcome you to this week's episode. I'm very excited because I got to sit down recently with a fellow that's had such an illustrious career in this music, and he is one of my all-time heroes on the mandolin, and he was uh, one of the early members of the Country Gentleman. He's had his own band uh, with Keith Whitley and uh, others, He was in J.D. Crow in the New South and actually recruited Keith Whitley to the New South when Keith joined the band. He's been with Spectrum with Glenn Lawson, Bela Fleck and Mark Schatz, and Tony Rice Unit, and many other bands. I'll tell you, we had such a great conversation and a long conversation that this is going to be two parts. This week is the first part, and I'm talking about Mr. Jimmy Goodrow and uh, Jimmy has had such a great career in bluegrass music and, uh, like I say, is one of my all-time heroes on the mandolin. I remember the first time I saw him in person with the Tony Rice unit, I was just so blown away at how, how tasteful and how fluid and his mandolin playing was. And, uh, of course, all the records he's been on with Tony and uh, other people is just uh, amazing also. So I was very happy to get to sit down and do a telephone interview with Jimmy recently. And we got to talk a lot about his career and his mandolin playing style. So we're going to go ahead and get into that interview now with Jimmy Goodrow. Well, I guess I'll start by asking you about your very first introduction into music. What got you started playing? Did you, I've read somewhere that you started playing uh, electric guitar first. Is that right? Not first. No. Um, Actually, I I kind of followed my older brother. Uh, He was playing uh, accordion, and uh, I never wanted to get into that. And eventually, he found out that he really wasn't interested in it either. So <laughs> he got into the guitar before I did. Um, after I think one Christmas, he might have got a plastic Arthur God- Godfrey. I guess is uh, who it was that was uh, marketing ukuleles, and he had a plastic ukulele that was his first introduction to strings. Okay. And he'd leave it sitting around, and occasionally I'd pick it up, and if it was in tune, uh, I remember he said something about, my dog has fleas. If you, if you can yeah. hum that, you can tune it. So. Oh, yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, that's, that's pretty goofy, but that's I was like seven years old or something like that, and I picked up the ukulele and was able to find a couple of chords on it that sounded pretty good, you know, because I uh, I thought the, the notes went together and it didn't sound too awful to me, and I messed around with that for a while. Meanwhile, he uh, had gotten a guitar for Christmas, uh, an electric guitar, and I was pretty jealous of that, and my parents said, well, you know, uh, when your birthday comes up, maybe we'll get you a guitar because... You know, but it won't be anything electric or. So my first guitar was the um, lowest end 
Silvertone that Sears Roebuck sold. Oh, yeah. It was like $8 oh, wow. or something like that, made completely out of plywood. And, yeah. You know, uh, it, it was kind of rough playing and rough sounding, but it was what I had to learn on. So I played that thing for a couple of years, and meanwhile my brother was, um, you know, getting better and better on his electric guitar, and, of course, I wasn't allowed to touch that, you know. Yeah. Uh, eventually, when I got older, uh, I traded the, uh, I got rid of the Sears and Roebuck guitar and got a Sears and Roebuck electric guitar, which was a thin body. Uh, and actually, uh, I'll tell you, it was made by Dan Electro. So it, it, Silvertone was uh, a brand name that they used for their marketing thing, but you know, they didn't actually manufacture instruments. I found out later that because I, I had seen a Dan Electro that looked exactly like my guitar, and, they, and somebody said, oh, yeah, these things, Dan Electros are fairly well-regarded instrument, you know. And, and later on, I found out that if you still had one of those things, it was worth some pretty good bucks. Yeah. And uh, But like everything else, uh, you know, I, I traded up or away and, and eventually ended up with um, a Fender Stratocaster in my teens, I, I guess, because I had gotten into the band business really early, uh, like 13, hooked up with a couple other guys, and we were playing high school functions and uh, dances and you know, little shows around town. But uh, you know, had to have electric guitar because... <laughs> you know, all your buddies have got them, so yeah, got to got to be able to compete. Right, and that was um, my introduction into not professional playing, I, but made a few bucks. So I, I guess I, I was a semi-pro at the time, but yeah. still, you know, still going to school, of course. And uh, I, I didn't know what bluegrass was because, being from Rhode Island, there just wasn't any any around that I knew of uh, until a high school friend of mine got interested in it and and uh, wanted to learn to play banjo. And I said, banjo? What, what's this? <laughs> and he says, well, don't you know? It's like, you know, there's, there's a lot of folk music going on these days in bluegrass. And I said, well, I'm, I'm familiar with the folk music if you're talking about, like, the Kingston Trio and uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary and stuff like that. And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's, that's going on as well. But, you know, there's things like Bill Monroe and Flatt and Scruggs and Jimmy Martin. And, and I said, who are these people? And he said, well, you know, he says, I'm, I'm interested in taking up banjo. And I said, fine. So he says, would you like to go to a jam session? I said, you mean to, to listen? He, he said, well, you know, you never know. He says, you know how to play guitar. Somebody might have a guitar there that you can strum. And I said, sure, why not? You know, so <laughs> went to this guy's house, a, another a mutual friend who was uh, a couple years ahead of us in high school. And um, they were transplants from West Virginia, uh, down near Lewisburg and living in a um, nearby town there in Rhode Island. And every now and then they would throw jam sessions and invite 
all of their bluegrass picking friends over. And that was my first exposure to that. And mandolin, because, you know, I I had learned a little bit from my friends, just, just a basic role on the banjo, just to see if I could do it. You know, not that I really was dying to be a banjo player or anything, but, uh, you know, I, it was intriguing to watch this guy play. And uh, anyway, so we go to the jam session. He breaks out his banjo, and I happen to notice that there's a what looks to be a mandolin uh, sitting on the couch there in this living room. And one of the other guys said, pick it up and figure out how to play it. And I said, I said, I've never had my hands on one. And he said, ran his fingers across the strings. He says, it appears to be in tune. <laughs> he says, why don't you just, you know, take it and, and mess with it. And, and that's what I did. So basically, I guess you can call it the Bill Monroe approach or similarity that uh, I came into mandolin playing by default. In, in Monroe's case, it was the instrument in his family that, Nobody else played, and you know he was he was the last one in line, I guess. So right. he picked up the mandolin by default and and learned how to play it on his own because evidently he would listen to some of the local players around Rosine and his uncle Penn, who played the fiddle, and figured, hmm, this is tuned like a fiddle, so I can learn to play it, and that's basically what I did. You know, I would yeah. I would watch the fiddle players at these jam sessions because there was there were no other mandolin players. Yeah. And uh, as a matter of fact, the same guy that led me to the mandolin, and he said, uh, do you sing? And I said, yeah. I, in my rock and roll band, you know, Jimmy G and the Jaguars, I, I sing the highest part in the trio, you know, because we were doing Beatles tunes and all kinds of stuff. And, and I did have, back then, a, uh, a higher range natural tenor, I guess you could say, and he, he said, well, you, you should be playing mandolin because, you know, that's the instrument that Bill Monroe plays, and again, this, who's, who's Bill Monroe? <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like, I, I, I think I've heard of this guy, but I don't know, you know, I hadn't heard him play, I hadn't heard him sing at that point, and, I, you know, he was just, oh, he's the father of bluegrass. Oh, well, thanks for letting me know, because... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know before that. Yeah. And uh, he said, well, if you sing the highest part, then you should be playing mandolin. And I said, oh, okay. He says, you can take it home and mess around with it if you want to. So that's that's what I did. I I took it home and uh, uh, learned a few chords and went back to the jam session and said, well, I've learned some chords and started strumming these two-finger chords. And the guy says, no, no, no. You, you, you got to learn to play chop chords. And I said, "What's that?" You know. And <laughs> so he taught me. He said, "No, you use all four fingers." After that, look out because uh, I, I, I got dangerous once I learned how to chop chords. And he says, "You play on the offbeat, not on the onbeat." So mm-hmm. I, I got all my lessons in, and in about. The same month, you know, I went from a non-player to a guy that was trying to stand out front chopping chords yeah. <laughs> out of time. <laughs> and basically the rest is history because 
uh, you know, I, I liked it after a while and mm-hmm. uh, got into better or different players. You know, I, I discovered there's, there were more players around than were at these jam sessions. And um, my banjo-playing friend took me to a, a show at a volunteer fire department. And he, and he says, well, here's some other guys that are playing, and, and they were pretty good. Uh, there was actually a mandolin player, uh, a young lady who lived uh, locally, who somebody taught how to play mandolin, and she was much better than me, much better. So I just sat there and watched her play all night long, and uh, really, I was getting the bug by then. I, I needed a better instrument, and eventually got my hands on a uh, a Gibson a model, which I borrowed, and I didn't buy that one. And after that, uh, I found that there was a music store over in Plainfield, Connecticut, which Rhode Island isn't that big, and, and uh, Eastern Connecticut kind of butts up uh, against it, so it wasn't that far away. So my friend and I went over there, and he said, "Oh man, yeah, you you, you need a better mandolin." <laughs> so. Uh, I ended up buying, I don't remember, I must have been making payments on it because I don't think I could afford it. It was $175, and yeah. it was a Gibson uh, F2 model, okay. uh, oval hole, yeah. and it was much better than uh, anything else that I was using or borrowing at the time, and that was my first purchased mandolin. You still uh, have that one? No, that's long gone. Yeah. Uh, but there is, if, if somebody out there might actually be able to locate or have a copy of the first recording that I did in Bluegrass, because I joined a band, uh, I, I was just barely good enough to be part of a band, and it was called Fred Pike, Bill Rawlings, and the Twin River Boys. And... Uh, somebody financed, a good friend of ours financed our one and only uh, LP at the time. And if if you look at the, the photo on the front, I, I, by then I was, I had gotten to the ripe age of 19 before yeah. I got into uh, a bluegrass band. No mustache and very much, you, you know, look like a young kid. And, yeah. and I am holding that F2 mandolin and it's the only uh photograph that i know of okay uh where, where i am playing that as a matter of fact wow well that's cool so, to know but that's how i got into bluegrass after you started learning more about bluegrass and uh the artists therein um what artists kind of might have shaped your mandolin style after you started get, becoming more aware of other mandolin players uh john duffy to a certain extent uh, his, I loved his rhythm playing. I, I wasn't really all that keen on uh, on the lead, but uh, my favorite player at the time was uh, Bobby Osborne, mm-hmm. and he's still one of my favorite players. Yeah. Um, once I heard uh, this, the tune that he wrote, "Surefire," um, I had to learn it. You know, I, I slowed that thing down. Um, as much as I could, we we just happened to have a, a turntable at the time. Again, it was my brother's; it wasn't mine. But that had a sixteen 
speed uh, thing on it, 16, uh, 33, uh, and then I think it also played 45s and 78s. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, I slowed that thing down to 16 and started capturing the notes of that tune. Had no idea had what it, what I was doing except trying to mimic what I was hearing. You know, people straightened me out after a while and said, "No, you're not. You're not exactly doing that one right." And I, whatever. And I said, "Well, you know, I'm I'm trying to pick up what I can off of you know the records that I've got, and I haven't got that many records." <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot harder way to learn too. Well, that's the way it was. There were, you know, mm-hmm. there were, there wasn't instruction books or, or, or that I was aware of anyway right. out there. No uh, YouTube or anything like that. No, no, I I had no idea. Uh, one of the first ones that uh, started getting acclaim was uh, Bluegrass Mandolin by uh, Jack Toddle, and that came along well after uh, I had. Uh, started messing around with it by myself so i didn't even get to see uh what again is was regarded as uh the basic primer or uh, is that the right pronunciation or primer mm-hmm. uh <laughs> for uh mandolin playing you know right and um and i never even found a copy of that later on because I had gotten hooked up with this guy, Fred Pike, in in the band situation, and he was really a good, accomplished player. I mean, uh, guitar-wise, uh, banjo-wise, I mean, he played guitar like Doc Watson, and he played banjo like Don Reno, and uh, he knew enough about a mandolin to straighten me out about a lot of things, and yeah. he'd sit me down and, and show me what he knew about it, and he knew a lot. So uh, I basically got my uh, chops in from him. So really, in a lot of ways, you were self-taught on on mandolin, just uh, listening to people and learning from what they were doing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He he could only take me so far Mm -hmm. with it. And, uh, you know, lead-wise, he said, you know, listen, listen to... You know, some of these players don't try to don't try to swipe their licks note for note, and, and you know I was already trying to do that with Bobby Osborne. So yeah. he said, "Figure it out for yourself." You know, if you want to be an individual or have your own, you know, signature sound, work on it. He said, because he's basically talking about himself. You know, his he taught himself how to play banjo like Don Reno and guitar like Doc Watson and yeah. uh, he uh, he says you can do this he says I, I don't have to I can only take you so far in the mandolin and you have to take it from there so that's what I did and so what I did and uh, I, I am not ashamed to say so that I took a lot of the licks that, that I was playing on my electric guitar and started playing these things. And he said, well, there you go. And he says, he says it may be a guitar lick that you learned from Lonnie Mack or, you know, Chad Atkins or somebody, And but you still, you know, you figured out how to incorporate it on the mandolin and, you, and you're getting, 
you're getting a pretty good sound there, yep. son. You know, <laughs> that's that's what I did. Well, it, it worked out well I, because you definitely have a signature style. I love your style of mandolin. Well, thank you. Um, it it uh, you know is it's something that evolved uh, kind of on its own. And I was um, uh, one more story. Fred Pike's brother Earl. They used to be a team way, way back before I knew them and uh, the Pike brothers. But Earl Pike was one of the uh, distributors for Rebel Records in New England and therefore had a connection with Dick Freeland, who owned and started that label years ago. And he was the guy that got the phone call after John Duffy had quit or had turned in his notice to the country gentleman that they were looking for a replacement. And uh, Dick Freeland happened to be talking to Earl Pike and said, uh, you know, John Duffy's going to be quitting the, the country gentleman. There's uh, somebody coming in uh, from Roanoke that's going to be trying out for the job. Turns out that was Herschel Sizemore. Oh, wow. Who was a wonderful mandolin player and a great tenor singer. But uh, evidently, he uh, was working for the uh, USPS at the time and uh, wanted the retirement and, and the job, and he didn't particularly want to relocate. After, after coming in and staying a couple of weeks in D.C., he said, boys, he says, I don't think I'm ready to relocate to D.C. It's a great band and whatever. You know, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not trying to imitate his accent <laughs> by any means but uh he is such a good player but he wanted to be back in roanoke you know with his family and go back to his job so they were in a fix uh the country gentleman that is because they had a tour of japan lined up through mike seeger who had connections over there and they needed to have somebody like yesterday again dick freeland contacts his distributor, Earl Pike, up in Connecticut, and says, isn't there a guy up there that plays with your brother that's pretty good? And Earl says, yeah, he's, he's getting to be pretty good, and he's a good tennis singer. And so he said, give me his phone number. And lo and behold, one night the phone rings, and hi, my name is Dick Freeland, and I uh, run Rebel Records. And, uh, you know, and I said, well, I'm familiar with that because I've heard many of, country gentleman recording by that time i anyway you know i'm talking 1969 mm -hmm. so um you know i was already into my 20s and uh he said well john duffy has given his notice uh and we need the country gentleman uh need a mandolin player that sings tenor are you interested and i said uh yes because i knew if i had hesitated and, and said well, i'll call you back he would have just gone on to the next name or, yeah. or whatever, or, you know, I, that would have been it. And I said, yes, I'm, I definitely am interested. And he says, how soon can you get down here and try out? You know, we, you need to audition. And I said, how's like two days, whatever. And, uh, got on a plane, uh, went down to, came down here to the DC area and, uh, Dick Freeman picked me up at, uh, what was then just referred to as National Airport. Now it's Reagan National Airport. Mm -hmm. And uh, we went down to uh, 
nearby Alexandria where Charlie Waller had his uh, RV bus parked. And I met with him, uh, Ed Ferris, who was the bass player at the time, and Eddie Adcock. And uh, they said, you know, I'd been there like three or four minutes and gotten to know them. And they said, get that mandolin out, boy. And <laughs> we'll see what you know. So I, you know, had was familiar with some of their repertoire, not all of their songs by any means, you know. I, but I had listened to enough stuff that, and they they only wanted to hear you know, like a half a dozen tunes, and I, I started naming them off, the ones that I knew, and uh, they got into it. And <laughs> This is a, a story that I had told to uh, Katie Daly recently because she she uh, had heard this many, many years ago. I, I told her about the, this audition that uh, with Charlie and... Uh, Eddie and Ed, and uh, I said, well, bring, bringing Mary home. Of course, you know, I'm fresh out of Rhode Island, so uh, I have had much more of a Rhode Islandese accent back then. And when it came to the line, I looked all around the car, but Mary wasn't there. <laughs> Charlie said, wait a minute. <laughs> he said, you're doing fine. With the mandolin playing, he he says, but you gotta do something about that accent. <laughs> he said, I say, I said, what what accent? <laughs> you know, trying to be funny, and yeah. Eddie cracked up. He, he said, nah. He says, he says, it'll come. He says, well, I, we like you playing and and you're singing. Uh, do you want a job, basically? And I said, yeah. And uh, so I didn't even go back home after that. I, I stayed. I had enough clothes with me. He says, we got a job coming up like this weekend. You uh, need to brush up on some more of our material. And I said, well, uh, you know, Charlie says, I got, the, I got all the LPs at home. He says, and, you know, you'll be bunking in. He had a roommate uh, a female friend at the time that had a sewing room in their apartment and they had a tiny cot in there and they said, you can bunk in there until uh, you find a place to live, you know. So uh, that's where uh, I spent my days listening to Country Gentleman LPs in his apartment. I would be listening to the LPs while he was listening to me practice and working on my accent so by the time the gig came up on the weekend i could get at least through two sets of music and yeah the rest is history from there you know i stayed with them up until uh 1971 so it was like from the frying pan right directly into the fire <laughs> yeah absolutely i guess you you did the japan tour with them then also uh ironically here's what happened the, one of the first things that they did was they took me to the Japanese embassy here in D.C. to expedite getting my passport. I got it, I, and I've still got it, as a matter of fact. And it's unstamped because the tour never happened. Oh, okay. Uh, somewhere within the second week, I think, of me being down here, Mike Seeger called Charlie and Eddie and said, Boys, I got some bad news for you. Uh, the, the tour has been canceled, 
And the reason that it was canceled is because John Duffy wasn't going to be part of it. They thought that, you know, when they hired the country gentleman that they were going to be getting the country gentleman with John Duffy. And one of the reasons I found out later was that uh, John had no desire to go to Japan or he didn't want to even get on an airplane. He was not keen on flying. Yeah, and uh, he said, "I just soon leave the group," and that's what he did. Wow. Okay. But you know, they hadn't gotten the word yet that the 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 tour had been canceled because obviously they had taken me to get the passport and things, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it was disappointing for everybody. I, I was looking forward to it. You know. Yeah. It just wasn't going to happen. I did get to go to Japan first with. G.D. Crow, and then later uh, with Spectrum. So right. uh, I did get to sing and play in Japan a couple of times. Yeah. What was it like working with Charlie Waller? Uh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, He's a, a, a pretty resourceful guy, uh, a great singer. Um, that's what really honed what became, for lack of a better term, really had to listen to the lead singers in the bands, the many bands that I played with throughout my career. And listening close, you know, you had to get the phrasing down. And and Charlie was really good at enunciation. He he didn't slur words or, or you know, go over things that, that, that you'd miss. Every word that he sung, you heard. And... Uh, after hanging out with him and playing many gigs, I, I got the knack of it. And one of the things that, that happened, like in the second month, maybe, that I was playing with them, they had a regular gig at, at a club in downtown D.C., the Georgetown section of, of D.C., called the Shamrock. And they basically worked up all their material there before taking it out on the road. And this was... Uh, I think by then, two nights a week, I think it was like Monday and Tuesday or Tuesday and Wednesday. Yeah, I think it was like Monday and Tuesday nights from 9 to 1 or 9 to 2 maybe because we did four sets. I'll tell you, after a night of that, it was like, ah, and then I have to come back in the next night. (laughs) One of the nights I showed up with my mandolin, I come strolling through the door and people are whispering and somebody come over to me and said, Duffy's in the house. And I said, oh, really? <laughs> and uh, sure enough, right up, in not in the very front table, but maybe one back, uh, John and his wife Nancy were sitting there, and uh, I go directly to the kitchen area where, you know, we'd park our instrument cases and stuff like that, and I said to Eddie Adcock, John Duffy's out in the house tonight. He said, yeah, I know. Like, so what? You know, you know, you're in this job now. You got the job. He, he's the seldom scene hadn't started yet. So John was basically uh, doing repair work and, and instrument stuff uh, for uh, Arlington Music. I don't think he had intentions at the time of going back in the band business. But anyway, he wanted to. He was curious enough to come down and uh, catch me shaking in my shoes at the, at, the, at the Shamrock. And the first set, yeah. I literally was. I, I looked down, 
at, at my pants leg and it was waving like a flag, man. I just, uh, <laughs> you know, Eddie said, get over it, you know. It's, you know, you know what you're doing. Calm down, you know. And I said, oh. So I managed to get through that set okay and then came out during the break and John signaled me over to his table, you know. And I met he, him and his wife and he said, sit down, you know, have a seat and join us. And I'm going, I'm sounding like Jackie Gleason, you know, humming, 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 you know. <laughs> I I'm sitting at the table with John Duffy, one of my heroes, and the guy that I'm <clears throat> supposedly replacing. And I even hesitate to use that term because I'm, I'm, I am the kid off the street and there's nobody filling that man's shoes, that's for sure. So I'm just trying to be me. And he says, I like what you're doing. Uh, you know, you obviously get the, the tenor range down. Uh, he says, I, I, he says, I already heard the story from Charlie about your accent. So <laughs> I said, yeah, what can I say? I'm from Rhode Island. He says, well, you know, it'll come. Don't worry about it. He says, you, you're worrying about too much. And he says, that's, then if I can give you any tip at all, he says, it's, you know, you, you, your mandolin playing is great, but you, you're not selling it. He, and I said, what do you mean? He says, you are more technician. It, it appears that you are more of a technician than you are a showman. And I said, well, that's very likely. Because, uh, you know, I'm like only into the, my second month on this job. And he said, you got to be able to sell it. He says, uh, you know, it, it got me many years of... Uh, uh, acclaim and uh, and a reputation. He, he says I was probably had a, a, a reputation of being a, a better showman than a mandolin player. And I, just, you know, I just kind of rolled my eyes like I said, "Oh, I don't know about that." Okay. But you know, because I hadn't seen him perform. You know, I didn't. I didn't know. Heard the records, but you know, he says work on that some. And for the next fifty years. <laughs> I worked on it, and I had to work on it because, you know, I found out that I'm not a natural showman. You know, I am more of a uh, uh, a guy that probably could play in many bands and did as a side man, as long as I didn't have to be the front man, and I didn't with uh, the gentleman either. Charlie assumed that after John left. And so he was kind of working on that, too, you know. Charlie said, you know, I'm not a natural at this either. So, you know, if John tells you to work on your showmanship, he says, I'm trying to do the same thing, you know, with yeah. being the front man of this group because he did it all those years. He he did it all. Yeah. And so, you know, we were all kind of in the same boat. and uh, But we ended up doing a the first recording. It was called New Look new sound and uh, by that time actually the I, I don't know the entire story but they had replaced uh ed ferris as well as the bass player okay uh and got a guy another ed mclaughlin to play bass and uh, we we did our first recording for rebel of which i didn't really have any say so in selection of material or anything eddie and Charlie, more so, Eddie more so than Charlie, picked out material for that particular LP. 
and I believe that there's still uh, available. Uh, Rebel, I think, put it in a box set. Most of the material from that uh, from that old recording. Yeah. And uh, it's it's out there. I ended up doing three with uh, during my tenure with that group. Uh, New Look, New Sound, One Wide River to Cross, uh, which was a a, a gospel um, album. And then, um, what was, uh, golly, I'm trying to think of the last one. Sound Off, yes, because we, we had mm-hmm. our photos taken over at Fort Washington next to a gigantic old cannon. Oh, and yeah. that was the one that had, uh, uh, I had a lot to do with picking some of the material for that. And two, two of which, uh, became kind of standards. Um, uh, Bill Emerson was, the banjo player by that time, and, and actually on uh, One Wide River to Cross, he was the banjo player on that album as well. Yeah. But he unearthed Fox on the Run, which he had already did a previous recording with uh, Cliff Waldron, but it didn't go nearly as far or, be, or become as widely known as the Country Gentleman version that was on Sound Off. Yeah. And the other one, the other tune that was on there, uh, that became copied many times was uh, Teach Your Children, oh, yeah. which I had just gotten from, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Mm-hmm. Uh, Neil Young was on that recording, and, and uh, none of the bluegrass groups had picked it up uh, up, yeah. up till that point. And I said, look, boys, this is a natural for us here, and Charlie liked it, you know. And uh, Yeah, that is a great it song. It ended up on that recording. So what year did you leave the Country Gentleman the, f- the first time around? 1971. 71. And that's, uh, you know, that's that's kind of a story uh, that I, I don't, it wasn't that I wanted to leave so bad or that I was tired of playing with the group by any means, but uh, Eddie Adcock had come back on the, on the scene uh, the seldom scene was up and running by that time, so they were they were in the area playing gigs. And uh, Eddie, after a mysterious disappearance, for lack of a better term, came back and wanted to start a band. And he approached me and he said, "You want a little bit more freedom in, in material and whatever?" He says, "I think." we might be able to interest Tony Royce into coming with us, you know. But yeah. uh, anyway, that didn't happen. But I had already kind of given my notice to uh, Charlie and uh, Bill Emerson and Bill Yates at the time and said, you know, I just want to try something else. And he said, go ahead, you know. Yeah, you know, we, yeah. we, don't, we don't want to hold you back. So, yeah. Uh, that's when we formed the second generation. And that, for me, was kind of short-lived, just barely over a year, because, yes, I did have some artistic freedom, but um, some of the material that uh, Eddie and uh, Wendy Thatcher, his uh, girlfriend at the time and lead singer for second generation, she was picking out some stuff too, and by the end of that first year, I didn't like the direction that the 
the group was headed material-wise, uh, and the fact that we were traveling too far for too little, yeah. to put it bluntly, you know. Right. Eddie just uh, said, you know, we got a gig in uh, Kentucky, and it pays, uh, you know, $200 or something like that, and wow, well, are you kidding? We're driving all the way out there for, well, yeah. yeah. And actually, <laughs> we we were doing so many gigs out in that part of the country that we relocated. A band picked up and relocated to Columbus, Ohio. And that didn't set well with me either. I mean, I, I adapted to it barely, but uh, I didn't want to spend, you know, too many years uh, out there yeah. and was looking for an opportunity to get... I, I liked the D.C. area. One day, the day came when I just told Eddie, I said, look, I I don't like the direction this band is going, and I'm going to try something on my own. And he said, go for it, you know. He says, if you, you know, want to do something else. So I recruited uh, Keith Whitley, and at the time, Carl Jackson on banjo. I was still living in Columbus, and I recruited my old buddy, Bill Rawlings, who by the time he resurfaced in music, he was the uh, original guitar player in uh, Fred Pike, Bill Rawlings, and the Twin River Boys. But when he came down to D.C., he had the opportunity to uh, play bass with uh, one of his heroes, Buzz Busby and Leon Morris. They needed a bass player. And I, I said, they're looking for a bass player. And he says, well, I'll just learn how to play bass. So he learned how to play bass, and uh, I recruited him out of D.C. to come out and uh, play some of the first licks and gigs with us around the Columbus area. And uh, strangely or ironically what happened, uh, the Columbus or Ohio State Fair, it was, took place in northern part of uh, Columbus. And Carl said, well, Keith and I are going out there tonight, and uh, I want to see uh, Glenn Campbell play. Uh, and one of his banjo player is one of my heroes. He says, I, I really want to, you know, go out and, and, and listen to him. And, and I, you know, kind of balked that. I, I said, no, I'm, I don't want to, you know, I, w- I had other plans or something. And anyway, it was nice to kind of get those guys out of the house for a while. And I said, you know, go have a good time. Anyway, uh, they came back that night, and I said, oh, how was the show? And they said, uh, oh, it was great. Uh, Glenn Campbell, of course, was great. And uh, Keith, you know, decided, he says, you know, I'm, I'm tired. I'm going to bed. And so they were both staying with me at the time and uh, went off to their uh, respective, or Keith did. And Carl said, uh, I got something to tell you. And I said, okay, what, what's up? He says, I got talking with Larry McNeely. He, he saw me, you know, uh, as they were leaving stage, and he motioned me over. And he said, hey, Carl, how you doing? It's good to see you. And uh, he said, yeah, I really enjoyed your banjo playing. He said, well, I got to tell you something. I'm leaving soon. I've, I've given Glenn my notice, and he's in the market for a good, really good banjo player. And I think... 
you might fill the bill. And Carl says, uh, me? He said, yeah, if you want to come back tomorrow and audition, he says, ooh, this is, this is, uh, you know, going to be a little tricky here. He says, I'm here to play with Keith and Jimmy Goodrow and this band that we've already started up and up to you. So Carl, you know, laid out the facts in front of me. He says, Glenn would like to audition me like tomorrow. And he says, I'm, I'm going to tell you right up front. He says, I'm, I'm here to, you got me here from Mississippi to play banjo and, uh, and I'll stick to, you know, my word. You know, I'll, I'll stay with you if, if that's what you want. And I, and I said, Carl, I said, opportunities like this don't come along even like once in a lifetime for most people. I said, and, and, and you got the chance of a lifetime. I said, I'm, I'm not going to be a guy that tells you, nah, you know, forget the end or the audition and, and stick with me. Go do that audition, and uh, I'm sure you'll you'll do fine. And he he says, I was hoping you'd say that, you know. So we. Yeah, I think it was one of the first hugs that I have ever got. He just put his arms around me, and, and he, he was almost in tears. He said, "I was just so afraid that, you know, that not going to look at it that way." And I said, "Get out there, you know, and uh, yeah, make make me proud." And he did. He 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 had that job, held it for many many years, and uh, you know that's well documented. The 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 part that he played in the Glenn Campbell show from that point on, right. you know, right up until practically, I, I guess, uh, Glenn's passing. Right. Anyway, that's that story. Well, thank you folks for tuning in to this week's edition of Acoustic Music Talk. Please join us again next week for part two with Jimmy Goodrow. Next week, we'll be talking about Jimmy's time with J.D. Crow in the New South, the Tony Rice unit, Spectrum, and many others. So please join us again next week. Until then, please be safe out there. I'm your host, Brad Apple. Thank you for listening to Acoustic Music Talk. Join us again next week for another episode as we continue to explore the world of acoustic music.